So about seven years ago, my wife and I were invited to the Sanfords for Thanksgiving dinner. You know, as we were chatting back and forth, the conversation drifted on to talking about Christmas time. Laura made the comment about how she just loves the Christmas music. I piped up with, I hate the Christmas songs. You know, meaning, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, Santa Claus is coming to town, the secular songs, you know, those. A little bit later on in the evening, uh, Laura brought up how she just loves the lights. And I said, once again, I just don't like the lights. Then after dinner, having dessert, and Laura said something about how she just loves the smell and the taste of cinnamon. I said, I hate cinnamon. (laughs) She, She turned and looked at me and said something like, what kind of Scrooge are you? I think, I think I said this out loud to her. I said, I like Ebenezer Scrooge. That guy had some things right, right? Well, you know, some things. Uh, I guess I can be kind of a Scrooge. Um, but if you will allow me just a little liberty here, I want to I, I just give you a peek into my childhood a little bit. Maybe this will help you understand the source behind my propensity to be a Scrooge. So, growing up, our family, we we did not celebrate Christmas. I'm sure many of you know, but for some of you that don't know, I was born and raised in in a Mormon fundamentalist home. We followed the original teachings of Joseph Smith and the early Mormon leaders, and as a a result, polygamy was practiced as one of the necessary tenets of the faith. So I am one of 46 siblings. But just try and imagine that on Christmas Eve, 46 stockings hanging over the fire, all those presents around the tree. And don't forget, someone has to pay the bill, right? I was, I was taught to understand that um, Christmas was a pagan holiday, or it, they didn't necessarily use the word pagan. They said it was a worldly holiday, and it didn't honor Christ. It was just a worldly tradition. Therefore, because of that, I did not grow up with the fond memories of waking up Christmas morning with excitement and delight. I just simply have no reference point for that. Then when I got married and began to have children, uh, Christmas became part of our celebrations. Uh, My wife, she grew up with all the Christmas memories and fondness, and, and so she loves the Christmas season and everything that goes with it. And she was determined that our kids would would have those fond memories as well. Well, I was a young father with a growing family. The Christmas season always, always coincided with a slow time at work. Sometimes layoffs, money was very tight. I worked in the construction industry, and it was always a slow time, which meant it was a lean time financially. During these difficult financial times, I, I, I remember thinking back and on the teachings that I grew up with about Christmas being like a worldly tradition or a pagan religion or, or pagan tradition, um, I wondered and I couldn't, I couldn't escape the thought that perhaps the real motivation behind my dad's decision not to celebrate Christmas really had nothing to do with it being a, a worldly tradition. He just didn't want to go broke. 
you know, now, now to be fair, um, he was following his leaders, and they were the ones to lead out with the doctrinal decisions, which included their strong conviction not to celebrate the Christmas holiday. You know, could that have been their motivation? It may have. I don't know. But one thing I do know, my cynicism about Christmas was starting to grow. Over the years, I've just not really enjoyed the Christmas season that much. I think it's because in my mind, it's, it's a representation of the fake, the shiny, the pretty, the veneer. It looks good on the outside, but it, it just feels more sentimental than real. And I've been told, you just need to get into the spirit of Christmas. That's your problem. I don't think so. Being sentimental about Christmas seems, it seems natural to most people, and I understand this. But here is the problem. Being sentimental is always subjective. It's a heart issue. The Bible instructs us that the heart cannot be trusted. Rather, it should be disciplined, disciplined by the objective word of God. So please understand, I'm not, I'm not saying anybody that enjoys the Christmas season and all that goes with it, the lights and everything, I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that it's, it's, it's not good, okay? So don't, don't, don't misunderstand me there. Um, and, you know, and I don't think I'm the only one that has had a struggle with competing thoughts about Christmas. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was one of the most famous American poets of the 19th century. He wrote in his journal his thoughts about his country that was moving towards civil war, and at the celebration of Washington's birthday, he heard the, crisp, or he heard the bells tolling in the church while, while foreshadowing the growing unrest and the absence of peace. And then on April 12th of 1861, news came that Confederate troops had fired on the Union-controlled Fort Sumter, which kicked off the American Civil War. He wrote this in his journal, Who Can Foresee the End? And then in July of the same year, tragedy struck his home when his wife Frances was sealing a letter with wax and the lighted candle caught her dress on fire. She was so severely burned that she died the next day. Three days later, she was buried on what would have been their 18th wedding anniversary. And he was unable to attend the burial service due to the terrible burns that he had suffered while attempting to extinguish the flames and save his wife. He writes this note in his journal a year later. I can make no record of these days. Better leave them wrapped in silence. Perhaps someday God will give me peace. Two years later, his 18-year-old son, was, had, who had recently enlisted in the Union Army, was severely wounded. He was shot in the shoulder and it exited out his back, um, leaving him critically wounded. Then his lifelong friend died of an illness. And so it was on that Christmas day of 1864, after several heart-wrenching years of sorrow, he wrote his famous poem titled, Christmas Bells. Longfellow's poem was later set to a tune and used as a hymn that we sing today around Christmas, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. The opening stanza declares, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. 
As he moves through the poem, you can feel the tension in his heart. He continues. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to man. Hearing the bells toll at Christmas time, Longfellow experienced some of his own tension about dealing with the harsh reality and the fact that a problem exists. And this is true, there is a problem. It's fallen man and the sinfulness of sin. In Longfellow's case, there was internal strife among his people, the American people. It was a civil war, north against south. And yet he hears the jubilant Christmas bells ringing, recalling to his mind the words that the ringing bells represent of peace on earth, goodwill to men. How can this be? When the hearts of men are cold towards each other, even to the point of war. You know, this kind of, con- this kind of conflict confronts us all. It's the sinful heart of man. Yet, still there is something in humanity that longs to be part of good and noble things. And so often at Christmas time, we, we, we look to participate in something that will fill the longings in our hearts. The problem is, it's of- often we are just inspired by the sentiment rather than the real. And our actions can be fake or phony. They may have the veneer of good, the appearance of good, but it's missing the sincerity of genuine care and love. And we know that Christmas time is most often celebrated without Christ. This is no surprise. The non-believers and even atheists, they celebrate Christmas, and they have no problem doing this at all. And they can be just as sentimental and, in, and engage in doing thoughtful acts of service that, to fill the longings in their hearts. But the Bible says in Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. And you know, this is very fundamental to our theology as Christians. All the good things we can do for others only comes from an overflowing heart because of the good things that Christ has done for us. So now let's turn to our text this morning. If you want to open your Bibles, uh, we're, we're being the Gospel of Luke. It's Luke chapter 10. We're going through 25 through 37. We're going to be going through one of the most famous parables of Jesus. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm going to read through the text, pray, and then we'll go back through it. So Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, 
And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeepers, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to this man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, as we, uh, as we walk through this text, Good Samaritan, I just pray that you will open up our hearts and minds to receive and let us feel your spirit this morning as we read your words and try and understand its meaning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So now going back, let's go back to uh, verse 25. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is the question that the lawyer asks, and Luke includes a parenthetical comment that the lawyer was testing Jesus. Now, we we know the answer to this question, right? Consider Acts 16 when the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Or in John chapter 6, when the people asked Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. But Jesus answers this man in a very different way. Why? Why didn't Jesus give the lawyer those answers? Well, I think think the answer is obvious. This lawyer was proud and arrogant. You see, the lawyers in those days, they were religious lawyers. They knew the law, and they prided themselves in their ability to understand every jot and tittle of the law. This lawyer was trying to test Jesus or challenge him. He wanted to discredit him. So what does Jesus answer? Well, he turns his answer into a question. Look at verse 26. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Essentially, he's saying, you tell me, you're the lawyer. What does the law say? Verse 27. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor is yourself. One thing we can see for sure, this lawyer knew the law. In fact, he answered very accurately. He gives an accurate summation of the Ten Commandments. There are two tables of the law. The first table is the first four commandments, which has to do with our relationship to God. The second table of the law is the rest of the Ten Commandments, and this has to do with our relationship to others. 
the lawyer, he knew this, he knew this very well, for even among the Jews, they would have all known this. They had what they called the Shema. In Hebrew, it means listen, heed. It was, it was a morning and an evening prayer. They would have known this by heart. It's found in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your might. This lawyer rightly understood the law. And he also included the verse found in Leviticus 19.18 that says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This completed the requirements of both tables of the law, giving a very accurate summation of the law. He must have been so proud of himself. But what did Jesus say to him? Look at verse 28. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. You see, Jesus is saying, you're right. Now you can pat yourself on the back. You know the law. Now go do it. Wait a minute. Now the lawyer might be thinking to himself as he craftily and carefully searches for a loophole. That's what lawyers do, right? Look at verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? You know, it's so easy to have a check-the-box kind of faith, isn't it? Just give me my checklist and let me check the right box and and then I can move on. I just want to pause here and let's just just have a little self-introspection, okay? Do you find that you, like the lawyer, do the same thing? Do you seek to justify your, your behavior when confronted with the truth? Do you look horizontally to compare yourself to others so that you might justify yourself? Think about that. I want you to know that I'm preaching this to myself as well, and I think it's, it's, it's a wor- worthy to, to have a pause on this and think about that. Paul says this in Romans 2. You know, he's speaking to the Jews... But I I think it also rightly applies. He says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. See, Jesus exposes the lawyer's hypocrisy by challenging him to keep the law. Look at the crafty way in which the lawyer seeks to justify himself. He says, and I would guess with a bit of relief when he thinks he found his ace in the hole. And who is my neighbor? You see, he knows that if he can simply come up with a definition of neighbor that fits his comfort, he can satisfy the letter of the law and consider himself righteous. But the law is like a mirror. You don't know that your face is dirty or that your hair is a mess until you look in the mirror. So now to further expose the lawyer in his hypocrisy, Jesus tells a story. Look at verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. 
Here Jesus sets up the location, one that the Jews would, would easily be able to identify with, including the lawyer. The man was coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is about 18 miles downhill. Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet above sea level. Jericho is about 800 feet below sea level. So essentially, it was a 3,300-foot decline. With this dramatic change in elevation, there was, just, there was many cliffs and plenty of hiding places for robbers and thieves to hide and prey upon vulnerable and unsuspecting travelers. This would have been a very arduous and dangerous trek. In fact, about two-thirds of the way down, there is a stretch of the road known as the Way of Blood. It was a hot spot for criminal behavior. Jesus sets the scene of a notorious a notoriously dangerous and well-known path. And now he begins to add the characters. First, we have a man traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He doesn't give us any detail about the man's ethnicity or his tribe or his people group. He just simply says, a man. And he was attacked by the robbers, stripped and beaten near to death. I would assume it was probably a bloody mess. Verse 31 Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So the character that we see now come on the scene was a priest. The text says he was also going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, there's a bit of luck for this poor guy, right? Here comes a holy man who spends all his days working to restore peace between God and man. Surely this man will help, right? The text says, by chance, a priest was going down the road. What an amazing, fortuitous thing that a priest would be coming that way after this man's brutal beating. However, in Jesus' thoughtful story, when the priest saw him, he passed by on the other side. Apparently, he was off the clock. Look at verse 32. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, Passed by on the other side. What did the Levite do? He passed by on the other side. He did the same thing as the priest. Now, the Levite, like the priest, they served in the temple as well. So both the Levite and the priest, they would have been the cream de la cream of Jewish folk. Man, the luck of this guy. Two men of God who served in the temple, fortuitously, passing by. Can you feel the lawyer starting to squirm a bit? Look at verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Now here's the blow that just might render this lawyer down for the count. A Samaritan. The Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. They were, they were half-breeds a mixed race of Israel that had joined with a pagan group and intermarried with Gentiles and brought their pagan idolatry with them. And they had a competing faith, and they worshipped on Mount Gerizim. They were considered traitors to the Jewish faith. Now, in Jesus' story, what does the Samaritan do? What the other two should have done. When he saw him, he had compassion I would venture to say that the lawyer doesn't like this story at all. But it gets better. 
Look at verse 34. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him upon his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. His compassion moved him to action, and it was a sacrificial action. Do you think this, that this Samaritan traveler just carried with him a first aid kit? What about the oil and the wine? Do you, do you think he carries these items with him in case he happens to come across some poor sap that might get beat up? Well, Jesus doesn't say. However, in the story, we could surmise that perhaps he may have had to tear some of his own clothes to wrap and bind the wounds. And he, he obviously used his oil and wine that he had with him was probably reserved for some other use. And then he set him up on, a, on his own animal, and probably meaning that he had to walk. So it seems clear to me that this was very much sacrificial. And then he brought him to the inn. Verse 35. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. He pays the bill and, say, and says, take good care of him, and if it costs more, keep track of the cost, and I'll pay them as well when I return. Now, two denarii would have, would have been the equivalent of two days' wages. So once again, very sacrificial. Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? You remember in the beginning, the lawyer asked the first question to Jesus, and he answered him with a question. Now, likewise, the second question, and who is my neighbor, Jesus then, after this soul-convicting story, he answers this question also with a question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Verse 37, he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Notice, notice how the defeated lawyer answered the question. He was soundly beaten. Yet in his arrogance and pride, he could not even say it was the Samaritan. What does he say? The one who showed him mercy. Remember what Jesus told the lawyer after he answered the first question? He said, do this and you will live. And now after the lawyer answers the second question, like the first question, Jesus says, you go and do likewise. So what does this all mean? What does this parable intend to teach us? Is it to teach us how to treat others and how to show love and compassion to those in need? Well, yes, but so much more. Let's unpack it a little bit. You know, it's most, it, is, it is of most importance to understand this parable by first understanding the question in verse 25. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You remember the lawyer gave the correct understanding according to the law. Jesus didn't correct his understanding. He didn't give him a lesson on new covenant theology. He just told him 
to go do it. Why? Because it's the law. And it's what the law requires. If you in your arrogance think that you can save yourself, then you must keep the law. Think about this. Rather than seeking to justify himself, what should the lawyer have said? Let me tell a story. This is a true story. It's found in the Bible, in all the synoptic gospels. For those who don't know, the synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called the synoptic gospels because they tell a lot of the same stories. The narratives are very similar. So I'm going to tell this story. I'm just going to paraphrase it, put it in my words. A young man came to Jesus and asked him, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Sounds familiar to the question that the lawyer asked. Jesus says, why are you asking me about good? You know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. There you go. Do that. Then the man said quite confidently, check. I got that. I've been doing that since I was a kid. What else have you got for me? Jesus said, go sell all your stuff that you've accumulated. Give the money to the poor and come and follow me. And I promise you, you'll get lots of good treasures in heaven. The man went away and he went away sad because he had lots of stuff and his heart was with his stuff. After the man left, Jesus said to those around him, it's hard to get into the kingdom of heaven with a lot of riches. In fact, it's so hard, it would be easier for that camel over there to go through the eye of a needle than for a man with a lot of riches to get into the kingdom of heaven. When he said that, the disciples said to Jesus in complete perplexity, Who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So you're beginning to see what the parable intends to teach. Let me add a little more clarity. Jesus says on his famous sermon on the mount in Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Again, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Remember, the law is like a mirror. And is the law good? Yes. But it also accurately shows us what is true and what is real. Its intent is to expose us. Paul says in Romans 7, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Can you see that? If it had not been for the law. So the parable that Jesus told the lawyer was to expose him to the requirements of the law. And like most of us, the lawyer tried to excuse himself, or as the text says, justify himself. 
but the perfect law of God requires you to love your neighbor as yourself. How often? All the time. And it gives you no wiggle room to define who your neighbor is. In fact, Jesus says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. So again, what should the lawyer have said to Jesus after he said, do this and you will live? He should have said what the tax collector said in the parable that Jesus told of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, sinner. What did the tax collector say? Well, at first he said nothing. He would not even lift up his eyes, but he beat his breast. Then he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And among the Jewish people, to beat your breast was a custom or a sign of anguish and grief and contrition. So again, what should the lawyer have said? He should have said, I am a sinner. Cannot keep the law. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is what he should have said. And consequently, that is what we all should say when we are exposed to the requirements of the law. I want you to just personalize this Good Samaritan story for just a second. And, you know, the, the story Jesus told, told about the Good Samaritan. Try to insert yourself and then, then ask the question here. Do you love your neighbor like that? I mean, do you? And further, who loves their neighbor like that? Who can honestly say, I do, I've got that one down? You know, last month uh, when we had our men's shootout, on our way back home, four of us were traveling in Preston's truck heading home. He has one of those extended cabs, not the ones with the full-size back doors, but kind of the half doors. You know what I'm talking about, right? Let's just say it was rather snug in the back. Not too long after reaching the pavement, coming off of the muddy road, we came across a man looking kind of forlorn and standing by the side of the road with his pedal bike. We passed him and decided to turn around and ask him if he, he needed help. He said his brother was coming to pick him up at the Walmart, but that was several miles down the road and it was starting to rain. So he eagerly accepted our offer to take him down to the Walmart. We squished a little tighter into the back seat put his bike in the back of the truck, and we drove on down the road. As we drove on, we had the opportunity to share the gospel with him. He claimed to be a Mormon. Then he made this comment that he wondered how many Mormons had driven by him today and then not stopped to see if he needed help. We took him to the Walmart, and at the Walmart, we let him off and encouraged him to read the Bible and sent him on his way. Well, this is in line with the Good Samaritan story of thinking of your neighbor the level of sacrifice is on a much lower scale. 
So maybe at some time you did something very sacrificial for someone. If so, it was, it was probably someone you love, right? A friend or a family member. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? He says also, love your enemies and be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. Basically, love others and even your enemies like God loves them. Can you see the dilemma? It's just like the disciples said to Jesus in their perplexity about the rich young ruler. Who then can be saved? Here's what the lawyer in his pride could not see. None is righteous, no, not one. You see, Jesus gave him an illustration of what the law requires, and in doing so, this stopped his mouth. In Romans 3, Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Having said all that, does that excuse us? from modeling that Good Samaritan story? Well, in the words of Paul, by no means. But now hear me out. You know, this is a sobering fact. You are not able to love the Lord your God with all your heart, might, soul, and strength. You're just not. Nor are you able to love your neighbor as yourself in your own strength. The only way to accomplish this is in His strength. This is the heart of the issue. We cannot fulfill the requirements of the law in our own strength. With man, it is not possible. But that does not mean that we should do nothing. This is an important distinction. We can't because it's not possible without Him. We should because with Him... I can do all things through him who strengthens me, Philippians 4.13. Now, here's my application point. How can you or I apply what Jesus taught this lawyer? Here's the answer. By totally surrendering to Christ. There's no hope in anything short of this. Nothing. Let me ask you a question. What can you give... When you have nothing to give, think about that. What can you give when you have nothing to give? There's only one thing that you can give. You can give yourself. You give yourself. But now hear this. You don't give yourself to others first. You give yourself to Christ first. Then in His strength... You can give yourself in service to others. That is how you satisfy the law. You trust in the perfect righteousness of Christ. It's so critical to understand this because by default, we're going to look to ourselves. Our very natures, because of sin, are prone to trust in ourselves and the arm of flesh. It will happen again and again and again. That's why Paul says in Romans 7, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, realize that you are a sinner, that you've been saved by grace, and that you can do nothing of your own accord. Because of that fact, turn to God and ask Him to supply in you the will 
and the desire to serve Him and to minister to others. Then when God shows you specifically what you must do, go do it. But do it so that you do not get the glory. Because it's not in your strength that you do it. What does that look like for you? Well, I don't know. But God does, and He will show you. So I have a challenge for you. If you want to honor Christ with all your heart, surrender to Him. Surrender to Him. Do it today. And then remind yourself tomorrow. And then remind yourself the next day. Settle it in your mind that Christ is your all. And let Him have His way with you. This can't be put in too strong of terms. You see, there are many that don't really want him to have his way with them. Is that you? Many hear of Christ and agree there's no salvation without him, but they just can't seem to get past the acknowledgement phase. If that is you, I fear that you have not completely surrendered to Christ. I challenge you to trust in him far more than you currently do. His intentions for you are greater than anything that you can by your own mind imagine or devise. Trust in Him. Again, I say trust in Him. Don't remain in the state of wishing, wanting, and intending. Put to death the will of the flesh that cries out, my way. Ask Him to show you what stands in the way, and He will show you. And then he will mold you to the image of his son. This is the joy of the one who trusts in Christ. Now, if you're here today and you're not a believer and this is all new to you, or if you hear this message by some other means, I say to you, humble yourself and repent. Turn in faith to Jesus Christ. Confess your sin. Go to God in your quiet place and ask him to forgive you and declare that you want to trust in him with all your heart. Give up your pride, forsake your autonomy, and turn to God and live. Acknowledge Him, and He promises pardon for your sins. I pray that you will do so and not let these words pass over you with no effect. You know, my sermon today was not necessarily about Christmas or the incarnation, and yet it was. Christ came into the world to save us. And so what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Jesus came into the world to take away your sin. He came to set you free. And if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. No, the world has obscured the glorious truth of our salvation. And in our day, particularly at this time of year, it's been reduced to mere sentimentality. Jesus came to be the true and better Adam. He came to do what we could not do. He came to live the life that we could not live. He came to die the death that we deserve. So now if you want Christmas time to truly be about Christ, let every true believing Christian ring the bells of their own hearts. Enjoy a song to our God who sent his son into the world to be the propitiation for our sin. I just want to close with the last stanza in Longfellow's poem when the tension in his heart was finally released and he began to trust God again. 
Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we've looked at the story of the Good Samaritan, pondered upon that and thought through all the details of how we can do nothing on our own strength, nothing. Lord, we pray that we will turn all all our whole souls over to you. Leave no room sectioned off for just only us, but turn it all over to you and trust in you and let you have your way with us so that we can grow in our faith and in our joy and our knowledge of who you are. Lord, thank you for what you have done. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for your mercy and your grace and your goodness. Let us, let us this day make it, make it a commitment that we will turn to you and surrender all to you and find the joy that that brings. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.